With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Good morning, and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we talk about the abortion issue and the larger bioethics issues in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. We're a podcast that helps train you how to make the pro-life case effectively and persuasively. I am joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing, Nathan? Good, Clinton. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, not, not really much to report. I'm actually going to be moving in a couple of uh in a couple of months so i'll be broadcasting from a from a different location once that happens oh great yeah i'm glad to see california is finally getting our fall weather yeah uh, i've actually uh, when i've had to go out and feed the animals and go out to get the mail i've actually been having to take a coat with me that's uh, that's unusual yeah we went from summer about a week and a half ago to uh straight dead of winter it's been in the 30s here in san diego you know, when it, usually when it gets to around 40 degrees, Californians tend to cease to exist. But uh, I guess there are some parts of California that do get pretty cold. I mean, we actually do get snow up in the mountains, too. Yeah. Our show for today, we're going to be interviewing a pro-life philosopher. Uh, we have Hendrik Vanderbregen joining me, and I hope I, I've pronounced that correctly. Hendrik Vanderbregen received a BA in philosophy from University of Calgary, an MA in philosophy from University of Windsor, and a PhD in philosophy from University of Waterloo. His study and writing interests include logic, ethics, philosophy of religion, and philosophy of science, done with the goal of getting closer to the true, the good, and the beautiful. Hendrick has had articles published in academic journals, such as Biblical Higher Education Journal, Didascalia, and I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, Global Journal of Classic Theology, Journal of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, Perspectives on Science and Christian Faith, Journal of the American Scientific Affiliation, Philosophia Christi, in magazines such as Christian Research Journal, Mercaturnet, Political Animal Magazine, The Messenger and the Stream, and in newspapers such as Calgary Herald, The Carillon, Ottawa Sun, Toronto Sun, Waterloo Region Record, Winnipeg Free Press, Winnipeg Sun, etc. Hendrick also writes the blog Apologia. Hendrick was Associate Professor of Philosophy at Providence University College in Manitoba, Canada, and retired in June 2019. Hendrick and his wife Carla have two sons, two daughters-in-law, one grandson, and another grandchild on the way. Hendrick and Carla live in Steinbach, Manitoba, Canada, with their cat, Rupert. Hendrick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Clinton and Nathan. Uh, it's a, a delight to be on your program. Thank you very much. We're glad to have you here. You'd actually uh, messaged us through Life Training Institute, and as I'm reading through the book here that we're going to be talking about today, you seem very familiar with the work of Scott Glusendorf and Life Training Institute in general. Yeah, I some years ago, I guess it was uh, 2010 or so, I think I read Scott Glusendorf's book, uh, Glusendorf's book, uh, The Case for Life, and I, I remember uh, being impressed by that and, and uh uh, I taught a course. Well, I, t I taught ethics courses, but also I did a, a course on the abortion issue, and I, I used that text. And, uh, and I think I've uh, I've grown to really like uh, Scott Klusendorf. He, he certainly shows a lot of wisdom in, in many of his 
uh, online uh, articles and posts, and, and I, I appreciate them for that. And I, and I appreciate—I I just want to say—I appreciate the, the work of uh, the Life Training Institute. I, I'm not that familiar with the institute. I, I think some years ago, I, I remember—I think I downloaded or, or purchased uh, some kind of uh, like Pro-Life 101. Uh, package and I, I read it and it was very good and I appreciated that and I and I also wanted to say I, I appreciate uh, you Clinton Wilcox and and Nathan uh, Apodaca am I saying your last name right Nathan yeah, close enough <laughs> uh, for the work that you're doing I, I just uh, in just in recent weeks since we've had contact I, I've been perusing your articles and and uh, you gentlemen write very well and I appreciate the articles you've written and. Clinton, I think we had some communication about your, your I think I stumbled across your critique of a, the abortionist Willie Parker, I think his name was, and, and, mm. and you did a very good yeah. crit- criticism of him. And, and Nathan, I, 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 as you know, I read your one of your recent or two of your recent articles on, on, on uh, the, the condition of pregnancy as essential, allegedly essential health care, and I, I thought they were excellent. So, so thank you for doing that and some, some thoughtful stuff there. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah, thank you very much. You're we appreciate the yeah. We appreciate the kind words. We definitely both are in agreement that Scott Glusendorf, of course, is one of the the best pro life uh, speakers and uh, advocates that we have. And we're not just saying that because because we work for him, but uh, we're we're both both very grateful to be working for him. Now, according to uh, yeah, we'll we'll get to the the book here in a few minutes. But uh, according to the about the author page, which is where I, I read from the bio. You do a lot of work in philosophy. You have degrees in philosophy. It's not really clear here. Uh, well, I guess your area of interest includes logic, ethics, philosophy of religion, and philosophy of science. Are, are those generally the fields that you do work in as a philosopher? Yeah, I uh, I got uh, well. I did my well. Actually, uh, how should I say this? I let, let me just backtrack a little bit. I, I became mm-hmm. a, a, sure. a Christian, a follower of Jesus. A serious follower of Jesus when I was 30 years old, and uh, mm-hmm. and I had gone to University of Calgary prior to that, and kind of just uh, fumbled around and, and was not a really a stellar student, but I had taken some philosophy and, and uh, quite enjoyed, especially uh, critical thinking and, and logic and, and the study of argument, and, and also had taken some ethics courses. Uh, at, at the time, well, the the main philosopher at the University of Calgary was Kai Nielsen, who was a quite a high level. Mm-hmm atheist philosopher and Marxist, and uh, and, and a very uh, a, a good, decent fellow, I, I have to say that, because it's true. And yeah. uh, and basically, I, I basically got, after I became a Christian, I, I had the sense that God wanted me to go back to university and, and really study, you know, the reasons for our faith and, and deal with the uh, criticisms uh, concerning Christianity and the resurrection in particular, the resurrection of Jesus, and, and that's what I focused on. And 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 then as uh, part of that was just the study of logic. And I at the university, I went back to the University of Calgary, and I and I, they had six or seven logic slash critical thinking courses there, and I took them all. And then I I took a couple of them again because I just I was so interested. And then I audited several again. Uh, with different professors and with their permission, and I think I audited a couple sneakily as well, just uh, just mm-hmm. listening to see how different professors uh, uh, communicated uh, you know, the, the, this, the, the, on this on this subject matter. And then after that, I I, uh, I went to University of Windsor, where they actually have a, a program in argument, a, a master's program in, in argumentation, and I I took some courses there. Uh, on I remember taking one course just on the nature of fallacy. And it was just a, it was like a kind of like heaven on earth. I, I found uh, from a from a yeah. philosophical point of view, and, and someone who liked argument and, and reasoning. And I was a teaching assistant for a couple of uh, professors whose whose area expertise was in critical thinking. But the, all this was a, as a the goal was to seek what's true and, and to figure out what is true. And and, uh, and I, I applied this to uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And my, my master's thesis was on David Hume's arguments against miracle reports. And then my PhD dissertation was uh, titled um, uh, Miracle Reports, Moral Philosophy and Contemporary Science. And and uh, basically I, I tried to apply good reasoning to, to these. And I uh, in an apologetics kind of kind of way, a truth-seeking way, basically. Um, and then ethics was a, a large part of this, and applied ethics and the abortion issue certainly was was part of that. And early on, uh, basically, 
uh, in 19. Okay, I became a follower of Jesus in the early 80s, and at that time, the abortion issue was being discussed in Canada. Uh, we, we had our abortion law struck down in 1988, and so there was considerable public discussion about the abortion issue prior to that in the mid 80s. And I remember just uh, you know reading newspapers and, and uh, tr- you know following the discussion and just being quite amazed at the at the the poorness of the argumentation. Def- Defending the pro-choice position, and that that got me started, and and uh, and I ended up thinking a lot about it, and I wrote letters to the editor, and I spoke at churches, and I I think I was on a couple of radio programs, and this this culminated in a, a small book that I wrote, and that, that was published in 1988. Uh, it was called an inquiry concerning human abortion, uh, and then I I sort of uh, got sidetracked isn't the right word, but just focused on other things. And, and then monitored the abortion issue as the years went by, and it was part of my ethics courses as well. And then I retired just last year, and then I decided, well, you know, I should write this book again, update it, and and uh, and the and the, the final product is that book that you have, uh, untangling popular pro-choice arguments. So uh, now I I am pretty familiar with the work of William Lane Craig and he actually speaks quite highly of, of Kyle Nielsen so it's uh, interesting that he kind of factors into this this journey that you were on you know I, I saw William Lane Craig I think it was in the uh, late 70s and he debated Kai Nielsen at the University of Calgary and at the time I was not a believer and I, I remember going to the debates and and I have to say I didn't really understand all the goings-on in the in that discussion and and uh, but I, I remember having my, you know, going with my atheist philosophy friends and, and uh, kind of being shocked at their negative attitude towards Craig, and that, that sort of spurred me on a little bit. I thought there's something deeper going on here, and so Craig, his work has definitely influenced me, and I think he's a, a fine scholar and, and uh, uh, he's a go-to person from the perspective of philosophy of religion and apologetics. That's for sure, uh, and he's a respectable, decent man. That's for sure too. Yeah. So you mentioned that you had, uh, I think you said you, you'd read a book or you were just kind of familiar with the overall arguments for the pro-choice position and were unimpressed by them. Was that part of what led you to become pro-life or were you already pro-life at that point? No, I, I think I was, uh, I, I was kind of, uh, I was undecided. Uh, this was in the, the mid-80s. And the more I heard the arguments, I, I thought, boy, this is, you know, I, I by seeing the the poor arguments and then just seeing that there are stronger arguments on the pro life side, I, I became pro life and and uh, and I it was kind of like the the logic or or illogic of it all kind of drew me into it and, and uh, there was something strange going on. Just this is an example. I this I remember having a discussion. I was working uh, at a place with delinquent kids and, and this is in Alberta uh, and uh, I remember talking to a, one of my colleagues uh, who had just graduated from I think University of British Columbia and we were talking about the abortion issue and, and he said you know we can just define it whichever way we want the the unborn and then if we just define it as not a human being then we can it's not a big deal and, and uh, I, I look back I mean at the time I thought that's just bizarre but I look back now, and I think that that was a, a case of uh, a kind of a radical postmodern view of things that was emerging at that time in higher education, and it's like that we can just interpret things whatever way we wish, and and, uh, uh, and it's not a we can destroy this even though we you know we can just redefine it as something that's like not a human being. And then I had a colleague who uh, who had an abortion, and she described it as. Uh, uh, as having a wart removed, a wart, and I remember thinking that's just not accurate, and and, uh, and that, right. so that spurred me on. So, and then uh, also, uh, I guess this is kind of just going back into our Canadian history. There was an abortionist named uh, Henry Morgenthaler who was uh, very influential in getting our, our Canadian law struck down, and he was uh, the leading abortionist uh, at the time, and he has clinics across Canada. And I think he still does. He's just getting quite old. But but one of his arguments uh, that was in favor of uh, his position, the pro-choice view, the abortionist view, was that uh, he compared the, the single-cell embryo to a to a brick of a house. And he said that just as mm-hmm. as destroying a brick is not destroying a house, so t- and it's not a big deal. 
so too destroying a, the single human embryo is not a big deal. And I remember just being struck by how that was a faulty analogy because, you know, if, if you had a brick that you just basically, you know, added uh, water and, uh, you know, food to, uh, and it grew into a house complete with, uh, you know, furnace and computer technology and curtains, blue curtains and, and plumbing that perhaps leaked for a few years initially and then kind of worked afterwards. I don't think you get rid of that brick. Uh, and so it was a faulty analogy. The, the, the human embryo uh, is basically a, a whole house compacted and it will grow into that house if you don't uh, destroy it. So. Right. So here, here was this leading abortionist with this lousy logic uh, and using that to justify the abortion practice, the death of thousands right. and thousands of human beings. So that, that struck me as, as uh, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong rationally, morally, um, and, that, and that spurred me on to further thinking. It's also a bit ironic that he would camp on that argument, talking about a single-celled embryo, when as an abortionist he knows he does not perform abortions on single-celled embryos but on multicellular human beings. Yeah, there, there's millions, if not billions, by the time uh, uh, an abortion occurs, usually, right? And, and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, you do mention Dr. Morgan Thaler in your book uh, quite a few times. There's another pro-choice advocate I'm familiar with that I've come across on online named Bob Seidensticker. And he actually makes kind of a similar argument to Dr. Morgan Thaler's because, you know, you start off as a single cell and human beings, like adult human beings, have billions of cells. And so you're not a human until you've accumulated so many cells, or at least you're not a person. And that struck me as like a really, really bad argument. And and then I read in your book, Dr. Morgenthaler making a similar argument with the bricks. And I wouldn't have thought I would encounter another argument like that just because it was such a bad argument. But there it was <laughs> right there in your book. And that's, and that's these are, well, they're, they're intelligent people, right? Like, I mean, they're doctors and and uh, but they have these terrible blind spots i suppose intellectually that that, uh, that is is troublesome i, I find um yeah so yeah yeah i haven't come yeah. across that doctor that you mentioned but uh oh no he's not a doctor as far as i know bob seidensticker he, he's a blogger uh, i'm not sure what his what he does for a living but he, he writes a, a blog online i don't think he's a doctor though Okay. You know, I, I, I've discovered, and I suspect uh, Clinton and Nathan, you've discovered this too, that many of these arguments are, are just slightly, there's a, there's a finite number of them, and they just take on a slightly different dress or form and then get repeated again. And uh, it's like, the, and, then, and then people think that it's a new argument. It, it's just not. There, right. there are poor arguments that just get recycled. So. Yeah. So your book is called Untangling Popular Pro-Choice Arguments, uh, and it has the subtitle Critical Thinking About Abortion. So you decided to write this book after you'd already retired. Yes. I had, I had it uh, in mind over the years, and, and then I, I retired just last year. Uh, I, I had to retire. Well, I, I retired at age 66. I was hoping to continue working until I was 70, but I had some health issues yeah. that, that, uh, that, uh -huh. that uh, spurred me on to retire. So, But uh, I, I've, I've been able to get over most of those health issues. I mean, there's still concerns, but uh, so I'm working at my yeah. own pace, and, and this was a, 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 the fruit of that. Yeah, at least you're still able to get some work done in publishing and writing books. Sorry to hear about your, your health issues. Uh, my my own dad was actually forced into early retirement because of, of health issues. He worked for Cal OSHA and um, ended up getting asthma and, and other health-related issues like that. But yeah, but I'm glad you're able to, to continue working. Yeah, thank uh, you. It, it, it's, a, it's the old case of you, you you don't really appreciate your health until you sort of, uh, it's challenged, right? And then so, right. anyways, that, it's, it's, it's uh, for the most part good now. So Yeah, well, that's good to hear. So your book then is in three parts. You split it into three parts depending on the type of argument that you are addressing. Uh, the first part being popular pro-choice arguments closely related to the denial of the unborn child's personhood, part two being pro-choice arguments that have to primarily do with the bodies of the mother and the unborn child, and then your part three is regarding miscellaneous arguments, which you, you also talk about The Handmaid's Tale, and uh, especially with uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, being nominated for the Supreme Court, The Handmaid's Tale has been on a lot of people's minds and has been uh, an argument that a lot of pro-choice people have been 
talking about as well. I've never read the book myself, but it is a book that I've I've heard a lot of pro-choice people bring up, especially if you're a conservative Christian and talking about how there are certain types of sexual conduct which are wrong, then they'll bring up that book uh, especially. The, the hand, Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood uh, mm-hmm. it came to my attention primarily because we were at a uh, in my community here in Steinbeck, we had a, a life hike or a, a pro-life march walk. And, and uh, we had a bunch of, uh, I don't know, five or six uh, people, women dressed in those red uh, gowns with the white collars uh, as handmaids. And they were carrying signs and, and uh, referring to Margaret Atwood's book. And and so I, I, uh, and I, I, I got the, what they, was on their signs. So I wrote, wrote it down. Uh, or a friend of mine took photos of them, and and then uh, I read the book, and I, I watched the the first two seasons of of, of that, and I, I don't recommend it, but it's a it's an interesting story. But the the whole Handmaid's Tale, the idea is that somehow in a in dystopian future, uh, women are forced to get pregnant to continue on the the, the human. Uh, uh, reproduction and and that's not at all it's, it, uh, that's not at all what pro-life is about uh, it's a misrepresentation of of pro-life views we, we're not saying women should be forced to get pregnant uh, we're rather saying that uh, you know a, a pregnant woman shouldn't kill her unborn child and, that, and that's a that's right. a there's a world of difference there so it's a misrepresentation and and uh, and, and there were some crude things in the, on the science too that I, I mentioned in the book so, so anyway, it's I, good to get clear on that I have to say, I think it is interesting that the only people walking around with Handmaid's Tale costumes are the people that actually went out and bought them of their own volition. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're, we're in favor. Pro-lifers are in favor of of, uh, of, of freedom. Uh, it's just that we, you know, the freedom is not absolute, and and, and uh, freedom is curtailed when you uh, when it infringes on the on, on another human being, another person. Like the, right. the freedom. I'm sure you've heard this before. The the freedom that I have to swing my fist ends at the tips of other people's noses, right? And, and similarly, the freedom right. you have to do what you want with your body ends at the tip of another person's nose, another human being's nose, and, and it turns out that there, with abortion there are two bodies, the, the pregnant, the mother, and then the, the unborn child, uh, and so that needs to be discussed, and, and uh, that's what we do. So what was the process that you went through when you were deciding which pro-choice arguments you wanted to address in the book? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. I remember kind of, it was a, it was a difficult, I, I, I kind of, uh, I, I wrote uh, various articles and bits and, and tried to keep in mind which ones seemed to be more popular than others. And so I didn't have a real uh, kind of a, an algorithm or something that I followed, but, uh, but it was, uh, uh, it's more judgment calls on my part and, and just observing, uh, what was going on in the world around me and over the years that I've observed. And, and so these, these, these arguments struck me as, as the most popular of the ones that I have observed. And, and I was able to also connect them to, you know, the people who actually said them, right. And like Henry Morgenthaler, this Canadian right. abortionist, uh, are, are, there was a you know our prime minister uh, Justin Trudeau who is pro-choice and and a uh, Jagmeet Singh who is a the uh, leader of the NDP the New Democratic Party here in Canada uh, and and they all like for example so Jagmeet Singh said that uh, you know abortion is uh, a woman's issue and no man should ever speak about it and 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 here he is a man speaking about it right and, and so, right. so not only an ad hominem but also a self refutation going on so 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 publicly accessible uh and high publicly um, high profile people were making these arguments so that that made it even more on my list yeah if uh, if no men should be speaking out about abortion then we'd have to overturn Roe v Wade here in the United States which was decided on by seven men Seven men, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's like logic goes out the window sometimes here. Another argument that you cover here, which, I, well, actually, before we get to that point, I, I did have a question regarding your view of personhood. As you're going through several of these questions, you start 
talking about the endowment view that is held by by philosophers like Christopher Kayser and Frank Beckwith. So I, I, I take it you hold the endowment view yourself. Do you consider yourself a Thomist or do you hold to some other view of human anthropology? You know, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. I, 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 to say that I would be, I probably have Thomist leanings, but I, I, it's like I, I haven't read all of his work, so I can't really say, and there's so much, <laughs> that I can't really say that I, I am totally that way. But I, I, do, I do have sympathies there, and, I, and when it comes to personhood, it seems to me it is a matter of endowment, and, and by endowment we mean that there's a, a natural capacity. Uh, it's like a, a talent or a quality that, or gift that we are endowed with, and that and that gift could be uh, by God or by nature. You know, you can, this can go. I, I, I think I'm I'm going with a, a natural theology or a natural uh, natural law view here. Uh, yeah. But it's yeah. it's it's not like an endowment where it's like money given to a certain you know a professor's chairship or something like that. It's a mm-hmm. it's it's there. It's in the uh, it's in the the fabric of the universe. I think. Uh, and it can be discerned, I think, whether you're a Christian or not. So, which is which is very helpful, I, I think. But, but as a Christian, though, I, I would certainly underwrite it in terms of, uh, you know, the the, the God's God's uh, creation, right? And then there are we are right. pockets of value. So, and I think that that we are pockets of value can be discerned by 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 people who are not believers, which is which is mm. which is really. Part of part of I think the natural revelation or general revelation I should say, but but it can all yeah. be thwarted, yeah, or suppressed. Right. Yeah. So so on that note, one of the arguments that I had heard some time ago, which again was an argument that is so bad that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have expected an academic philosopher to make it, is the the argument that's number two in your book here: an acorn isn't an oak tree, so the fetus isn't a human being, so abortion is no big deal. I forget who you, who you quote in the book. It might have been Dr. Morgenthaler, but that's an argument that is actually made by Judith Jarvis Thompson in her famous essay, A Defense of Abortion. As I've gone to study the endowment view by Beckwith, Kayser, and the Thomas philosophers like Ed Fazer, I've come to realize just how, how poor of an argument that is, because obviously it doesn't account for human development, but it also doesn't account for things like the endowment view, which a lot of philosophers like Judith Jarvis Thompson just kind of seem like they're not even really aware of because they don't really address it in their writings. Yeah, I, I think they confuse, well, I, I, they do confuse developmental stage with the kind of thing that's in question, right? And and uh, and they, they confuse that, and then, like uh, an acorn isn't an oak tree. You know, the mm-hmm. better way of saying that is an acorn is not an adult oak tree. Uh, right. And they try to, to say that a, a, a fetus is not a, uh, a human being, but that that a fetus is a developmental stage of human being, and that the, a better analogy would be the fetus is not an adult human being, and and so they're just kind of uh, the question is what kind of thing are we talking about, and we're talking about an oak being and a human being, and then uh, so the right. stage, you know, you have stages of uh, the oak, uh, the the oh, acorn rather, and then the sapling and the small tree or adolescent tree, and then the adult tree, and, and similarly with the Embryo, you have the subsequent, you know, multi-celled embryo, and then the fetus, and then the, the infant, preborn, afterborn, uh, toddler, etc. And then, the, so they confuse those categories. So they, I think it's a category mistake, is what it is. That's, that's uh, right. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and it's uh, it's it's kind of it comes around in different forms. I think in the book I, I point to a different a couple of comment uh, commenters who kind of use the same argument, but use you know. Uh, a butterfly in a cocoon, or something, uh, or a yeah. tadpole and a frog, and, and it's the same kind of thing. And, and uh, so, it's right. a, an argument that's just mistaken, a faulty, it's a category mistake, is what it is. Yeah, I have heard the the other formulations, like the the caterpillar isn't a butterfly kind of thing, which it actually is. <laughs> it's the same organism, just at a different stage in development. So, yeah, yeah. And it's just we need to keep our eye on the ball there, and then uh, just uh, when all these different forms of that same messed up argument come become popular, basically. Yeah, and, and so you do address the burning fertility clinic thought experiment, which has become very popular online, especially with a comedian slash science fiction writer from a couple of years ago, Patrick Tomlinson, who kind of resurrected this. So how how do you respond to the burning fertility clinic thought experiment? 
Okay. Well, just uh, for this, in case our listeners don't remember what this is, it's like you're, it's a thought experiment in which uh, there's a fertility clinic that's on fire, and in the, on, the, on the one corner there's a, uh, I, uh, I say a test tube full of, uh, say, 50 human embryos, frozen human embryos, and then in the other corner is a baby, uh, and the idea is, that, you know, you it's a dilemma. And so, which do you save? You can only, allegedly you can only save one, and then and the, the uh, the inference that, uh, or the conclusion that, that people who usually set out this dilemma want, is that you know you probably you will save the baby because you, you know that's you're, you're inclined to think that the, you know the baby's alive and, and uh, is a human, uh, and uh, whereas the, the embryos are are not, and so they they see that as 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 as, as us or, or uh, a signal or evidence that we are. Not really thinking that uh, the embryos are human beings, and and, uh, and 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 now, so that that's the idea. Now I think uh, the response uh, there can be multiple responses, and that my my response I, I have a couple, and, and one one would be that it really appeals to our, our moral intuitions, and I, and I think they could be clouded um, uh, if if we were to like like, and, and I think they are clouded when it comes to the abortion issue because of this. We have the last few years maybe 40 years of of really uh, a lot of tangled up arguments concerning the, what is the unborn uh, and and so our people's intuitions are not being guided by by truth and informed by by truth um so it it could be that our intuitions are clouded and and, and if we were to put this thought experiment in say uh in, in the in the U.S. prior to the the Civil War, say if you have 50 black people in the, in a corner, uh, and then one white baby, probably the moral intuitions of a lot of people in the South would be that yeah, save the white baby, right? Those moral intuitions were clouded by cultural uh, baggage, mm-hmm. or or say right. if you're a, 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 a in Nazi Germany, and and on the one hand you have 50. Uh, Jewish people, and then on the other hand, you have a, a white, Aryan, blue-eyed baby. Uh, you know your moral intuitions, which would be clouded probably if you're, you know, part of the Nazi youth group or something, would be that you right. save that baby. So I, so I would argue that first of all, our moral intuitions need to be unclouded by, you know, discerning what uh, is in that uh, in the te- in the test tube. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, uh, the second problem, I get this from uh, from uh, Christopher Kayser who's an excellent philosopher and especially on, on on the topic of abortion he says that yeah. this this appeals to the the notion of triage you know uh, which is typically you know uh, how to handle um uh, people in say, say a battlefield uh, it's a medical uh, way of deciding who's going to get treatment say on a battlefield or in a disaster ho- hospital on a disaster zone and and you have to decide who you're going to save and he points out and I think correctly that this is not uh, a criterion of personhood, uh, but rather it's a, a criterion of, of uh, you know, which one are you going to save, and which can you do, and and, uh, and and so I think he gives the example of say uh, when the Titanic was sinking and and, and they said you know like uh, women and children get on the boats first right, the, the, they were deciding that they were going to save them, and not imply that the men were not human persons. Uh, and so it's important just to keep that in mind. And then and then also I, I would think too that uh, I think, you know, it's a, it's a forced dilemma. And, I, and my thought, and I, I point this out in my book, is that I, I think, you know, we can just say, okay, well, this is a forced dilemma. Maybe I could pick both, you know, like pick up the baby and then pick up that test tube and, and then maybe hope that the, the test tube could be, you know, a, a soother for the baby as I save the baby and the test tube. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I point out that that was an attempt at humor too. So I, so I, I think that I think the, the the whole thing is problematic, and that there probably are more reasons for 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 dis- dismissing it. But I, and I'm sure there are. Um, but I, those those that's how I have responded to it, and and so yeah, yeah that's uh, how I, I respond to it. Yeah, I actually thought you put that really well in the book about how you know depending on what era we happen to be in, you could really apply this thought experiment to different groups of people that we now consider to be uncontroversial persons, such as you know, black people back when we were enslaving them, or Jews during the Nazi Holocaust. I thought you put that really well in the book. Yeah, it, 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 and I think it's, it's not just a piece of rhetoric on my part. It, it, it does show, I think, 
that there's a it's it's important that we you know our moral intuitions were clouded and, and have been in the past and and uh and we need to really figure out who is a part of the human family and who isn't and and it turns out that black people are part of the human family uh right. know, jewish people are women are uh, and uh so too are our unborn children and and uh it's just that we we have this 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 cloud of of uh lousy thinking that's kind of um, uh entangling us and and the last probably you know as i mentioned 30 or 40 years uh a lot of people have just been thinking poorly about this like calling it a a blob of tissue or uh you know a, a clump of cells an undifferentiated clump of cells or a mess on a mm-hmm. napkin i heard one one uh, us politician say uh, or as my friend said, a wart. You know, it's not a wart. <laughs> you know, we, uh, I think right. science is on the, the pro-life side, uh, and uh, it's it's a human being, uh, not just a potential human being, but a, a human being with potential to be right. the subsequent stages. By the way, since you just mentioned Chris Kayser, we actually had him on the podcast last week talking about his new book on bioethics issues. I, I I watched that. I, I wanted to, and it was very good. Thank you for having him on there. And I, I got the book, and I just started uh, reading it. And and uh, yeah, uh, he, he's an excellent philosopher. And and uh, I really like his. Uh, I was looking at his first chapter on um, uh, speciesism, speciesism, yep. and uh, the view is that, uh, and this comes from Peter Singer, the philosopher Peter Singer, and the view is that uh, that. Pro-lifers are speciesist uh, on the abortion issue, and and uh, and 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 the idea is that this is like racism and sexism, and and, and racism uh, is 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 bad because you're making a a, a prejudgment or a, a biased view in your, in the interest of your particular race that's unfounded, and and sexism is bad because you're making a, a prejudgment or a biased view on the basis of of your sex, which is unfounded, and, and you're, you're putting down someone who is either of your not your race or not your sex, and and uh, and, and Kayser, I like how he approaches it. He, he goes on to say, well, if that's all that's going on, then it, it would sound like speciesism is is, is wrong, but it's speciesism. Uh, has some grounding to it, which makes it not just a, a bias or a prejudice. Uh, there are some reasons for thinking that the human species uh, has some goodness to it, uh, philosophically. Uh, and and say say plants have a, a vegetative uh, core to them, or grounding, or, or a characteristic that at the center of their being and animals are certainly sentient uh, they're able to feel and have a capacity to sense but uh, human beings are more than vegetative and sentient they're also rational creatures uh, who can think about truths abstract truths have moral views uh, you know have uh, relationship with God, relationship with each other, friendship, that kind of thing, uh, and so it's not just to say that uh, human species are are. It's not just a prejudgment that's unfounded. There are some reasons for thinking that humans are are significant. So, so I, I really appreciate uh, Kayser on on that, and I and I, I guess I'm going on a little bit of a sidetrack. I, I remember I was watching a a recent debate between um, Peter Singer. Who who is certainly a proponent of speciesism, uh, and uh, oh, what's her name? Stephanie Gray. Stephanie Gray. And, and she she did a nice response to to this view too, uh, and she just kind of said, you know, to, to, on the abortion issue, the the issue is primarily at the, at the moment we're dealing with equality of human beings, and we're talking about abortion. Should we include the unborn in the human family or not? And then she said, whether you know you want to care for animals or not, and she's saying, you know, it's not like how should I say this? She's basically pointing out that uh, care for animals is another topic, and, and you can certainly uh, have a high view of animals, but at the present moment, we're talking about human life and human equality. And so she, she uh, so she nicely just puts it in perspective, and, and she goes on to say. 
uh, if I remember correctly. You know, one one could say that you know when when one says Black Lives Matter, one isn't saying that Latino lives don't matter, or, or other people's lives. That's another question, right? And so, from saying that human life matters, we're, we're leaving it at an open question about whether or not animal life matters, and that would be another issue. And so, so that's one one way of approaching it. And then Kayser goes more deeply and then does a more philosophical kind of drilling. Um, uh, concerning the nature of, of of the beings in question, yeah. And uh, by the time this episode goes live on on the podcast, it'll probably be about a month ago that the Kaiser uh, interview aired. No, I appreciate I appreciate you doing that Kaiser interview, and mm-hmm. I and I I listened to another podcast of yours on gradualism, which was very good too. So thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh... that was kind of a lost episode <laughs> that we recorded last year. I just hadn't gotten around to uh, to doing post-production on it. So I managed to finish it up and post it to the podcast just a, a week or two ago, I think. So that's actually chronologically, as far as like posting date is, is our newest one, but it was recorded about a year ago. But yeah, but I, th- I thought the information in that one was uh, was important enough that I wanted to save it and yeah, yeah I'm glad you did. Interesting. I appreciate that. So those are some of the ones that you addressed in, in part one, which have to do with more of the scientific question of human life and, and a bit about the philosophical question of personhood. Uh, in part two, you, you talk more about the pro-choice arguments that have to do with the bodies of the mother and the child. And one argument that you, that you talk about is one that actually comes up fairly frequently. It's regarding kidney donation, that a lot of people will say forcing a woman to be, to be pregnant is akin to forcing someone to donate a kidney to them. How do you then address the question of kidney donation? Is refusing to allow a woman to abort her child, is that akin to kidney donation? And if it is, how do we make the differentiation between the two to permit one but not the other? Yeah, I, I've been uh, coming across this argument quite often, too. And I, and I think it, there, it's a faulty analogy uh, once again, um, I, first of all, I, I would agree that I, I you know, I don't have a, a moral obligation to give you my kidney, and, and you don't have a moral right to my kidney, and, and we would all, I think, all agree on that. But uh, I don't think that's uh, analogous in, in uh, to the the situation in in pregnancy. Uh, and I have this in my book. I said the, the the situation in pregnancy is more like this: my life depends on a kidney you've voluntarily given me, i.e. you've consented to giving me the kidney by deliberately engaging in and willfully permitting the action that put the life-giving kidney in me, uh, and it's a kidney you can live without, but now you want it back, and, and doing so will kill me. So, so there's a difference there. So, so, so yes, one is not morally obligated to sustain another human being via kidney transplants or donations, but one is morally obligated not to cause the death of another human being by taking away what she requires to sustain her life, even if it was your kidney. It's one thing for someone who needs a kidney to die because of a kidney ailment, but it's quite another thing, kidneys from another person and thereby kill that person. And abortion is like that latter case. It deliberately kills a person, usually by poisoning, ripping off limbs, crushing the skull, suctioning them out, etc., etc. So it's, it's a faulty analogy. Uh, and, and I think it gets its root from that Judith Jarvis Thompson argument that we mentioned earlier about the violinist. Uh, I, think yeah. that, uh, I think we mentioned that earlier. Uh, and, and where she says that, you know, you're not required to sustain uh, someone who, you know, you wake up and you're, you're, you're you're not required to sustain somebody, somebody else with your body uh, involuntarily. And, and she uses that analogy of, of a, a, a person waking up, a woman waking up, and you're, you're connected to this famous violinist who, you know, the famous, the violinist society, music lover society, hooked you up at night and, and uh, against your will. And, and, that, and, and she argues that, you know, just like you're not required to sustain that person with your kidney, so too, the pregnant mother is not required morally to sustain her child, and and that that's just a terribly faulty uh, analogy on on multiple levels. And I, I think you may have talked about this in a in a podcast prior to to this. And and uh, there there are problems. Like first of all, uh, getting pregnant typically is not a case of rape, right? 
Uh, you're not forced right. to be hooked up to a famous violinist, and, and then, and then also, unplugging the the uh, the violinist is is not a direct killing. You're, you, if you're unplugging the violinist, you're basically letting the the kidney ailment kill the 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 the, the, the violinist. Whereas in abortion, you're actually butchering the violinist, which is which is kind of a different moral category. And right. then and then also, there there are the the violinist is a stranger, uh, whereas uh, when it comes to having children, this this child is, you know, this is your child. Uh, there's a mother-child uh, relationship uh, and a moral um, realm that that needs to be addressed there. We typically we think it's important to care for children, not to kill them. You have a moral obligation to your children uh, who are vulnerable and, and they require your care. And you're not allowed to abuse your children. You're supposed to support them. That, that, that's why we soup deadbeat dads, right? Because they're not caring for their children. Uh, and, and so there's this moral uh, obligation that's there. And I think it's part of our, I think uh, the moral fabric of the universe and we recognize that and, and, uh, should live in accordance with that. And if you're going to have a child and you invite a child to become a part of your life by engaging in an activity that in effect invites that most vulnerable of vulnerable people to come into your life, into your womb, uh, there's a responsibility on both the parents' part there to care for that child. Yeah. And I apologize about the, the dogs barking. Uh, I'm trying my best to, to uh, mute the microphone when it happens, but unfortunately some of it is, is still getting through. After my move, I, I should have a lot more, a lot fewer dogs to have to, have to worry about horning in on the interviews. I, I think my cat heard your dog. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the hazards of doing these kinds of things, right? I know we... Uh, well, I'm right. sure you saw that video of a, of a fellow whose uh, you know children walk in. He was doing a lecture, and his his daughter or son walked into the back and did something, and his wife <laughs> got the child out. And it's just oh, it's part of the fun of it all. Speaking of fun, I I, uh, I want to congratulate Nathan Apodaca on his uh, recent engagement. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to congratulate yeah. him too, but I've never met the guy. <laughs> uh, I, I saw, I saw your uh, post that somebody by the same name as yours was engaged, and then you were getting all kinds of best wishes and gifts, perhaps. I don't know, but uh, anyways. Yeah, the funny thing is that it's been going on for about two months now. The BBC in London contacted me through the LTI contact form. I think it was the same one that you filled out uh, recently to contact us. One of the reporters for the BBC London office contacted Life Training Institute and tried to set up an interview with me a few weeks ago. I was sitting in a restaurant when I saw the email come through. I was laughing so hard they nearly threw me out of the restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's great. (laughs) Yeah, so for anybody... A gentleman by the, who also has the name Nathan Apodaca recently became famous because of a TikTok video he filmed skateboarding and singing along to Fleetwood Mac. Somehow it went viral, and now he's become very famous, and he's he was in a commercial recently for a home security system. I found out about that because Instagram, the company that makes that home security system, tagged me on it. And then they, they realized that it was the wrong person, so they took it down. Yeah, I hope their home security systems work better than uh, their social media accounts do. Otherwise... You might have your house being burglarized, and the, they call the police and send the police to the house down the street. Yeah, it uh, it's it's been an interesting couple of months. <laughs> I guess we're getting yeah. sidetracked here, but it's funny, I have to say. So yeah, yeah, and as for me, I, I've sometimes gone to my church to do the recording, but with COVID, that's not really a possibility. But also, my pastor likes to walk around the church whistling, uh, so it seems like no matter where I go, the distractions are. That's why we're trying to hopefully get a get a studio one of these days to ensure some peace and quiet. But part two talks about arguments having to do primarily with the bodies of the mother and unborn child. Part three deals primarily with miscellaneous arguments, which it seems to me are more of like the logically fallacious arguments, arguments that don't really address the heart of the abortion issue, but kind of distract from the main issue. One that I do hear pretty constantly 
is uh, every child should be a wanted child. That's almost like a pro-choice slogan, uh, so to speak. And it's one that pro-life people can agree with. We want every child to be a wanted child, but how we treat those children who aren't wanted are where pro-life and pro-choice people disagree. Right. You know, the, that slogan, every child, uh, a wanted child, uh, the, the Canadian abortionist uh, Henry Morgenthaler had that on his website for years. I think it's taken down now, but it, but it was there, every child, a uh, wanted child. And, and uh, it's, it's uh, well, you know, we would say, yes, of course, every child should be a wanted child. But this, this phrase basically hides the truth that the abortion uh, kills the unwanted children. Uh, and so... You know, we, it's like saying, you know, every homeless person should have a home. Yes, we would agree on that, but the solution that's being provided is to kill the homeless, uh, and, right. and, uh, and, and we shouldn't do that. So every child, a wanted child, it, you know, of, of, of course, and of course we would agree with that, but uh, that doesn't mean that we should kill those who are unwanted. And uh, and, and here, uh, so it hides the the. the the abortion act itself um but it also brings to light that yeah people should be wanted and we should care for people and i think the the pro-lifers in large 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 measure do that there there are so many uh crisis uh or or pregnancy resource centers or i think they used to be called crisis pregnancy centers uh and and there there's a lot of them and, and uh they're typically not supported by our taxpayer funding and and uh uh, so there's a lot of people ensuring that every child should be a wanted child. I know our our church, one of our pastors, who's a serious foster care advocate, uh, and uh, I think they've had 20 foster children. It's, it's some large number, and, and and so it's like we are doing our best to uh, to look after children and encouraging the wantedness of children, uh, and we're saying uh, don't kill them, right? And we need to to realize that. That, uh, that, that there are social problems, uh, but the social problems require social solutions, not the killing of innocent children. And, and that, that, that I think, is needed. Um, so, yeah, every child should be a wanted child, but we don't kill the unwanted. Right. And another question that you deal with here is another one that is actually on a lot of the minds of pro-choice people, where they say it's inconsistent for pro-life groups not to wish punishment for women who have abortions. In your view, if a woman has an abortion, if abortion is made illegal, Roe v. Wade is overturned, what kind of punishment should await the women who have abortions? Yeah, that, 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 that would be a, a difficult question. Um, I think it's important just to keep in mind that we were, we're at the present moment we're dealing with this cloud of confusion. And so for many, there, there's still this, you know, like... Uh, this confusion about you know what the unborn is, and so I I would not want to um, focus on punishment, but rather focus on mercy and 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 love and, and encourage uh, uh, helping. Um, uh, I think Christopher Kayser said something about, and I don't remember where I if I had this in my book or not, but uh, we should encourage you know like if if you. For, for people who don't know what's going on or are pressured into it, um, there's a, a, a reduction of culpability or moral culpability that, that goes with that, and then we need to acknowledge that. Um, so I think that you know, if the if the law changes, we need to be very careful, and I would err on the side of mercy uh, and and uh, err on the side of help. Uh, Air on the side of love, uh, and I'll, I'll have to leave it to uh, our, our, the wisdom of some of our politicians to f- try to figure that out. But I haven't uh, figured that out totally. I think right now we're more in that uh, educational stage, just to help people know what's going on and to cut through the intellectual intellectual fog that that's there, and then and, uh, hopefully get through it to what's true and good and beautiful as a solution. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And I, and I agree. It's, uh, it's a lot more complicated of a question than, than most pro-choice people give it credit for. You know, it's not just a, not, not just a thing where abortion is illegal. A woman has an abortion. She should be punished. But there are a lot of different factors that go into determining 
if there should be a punishment, what the punishment should be, that kind of thing. And yeah, usually the, the legislators are the ones that this kind of question is best left up to based on what the laws in the specific country, what the underlying philosophy, legal philosophy w- would be. I, I like, uh, in Canada, we have a, a, a law concerning prostitution and and, uh, and right now it's uh, the the uh, the pimps uh, are, are and Johns are being prosecuted and not the the uh, the prostitutes themselves and they're being helped and so it, it seems to me that maybe a, a first step with regards to abortion would be to prosecute the abortionists and help the women who felt forced to 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 have an abortion that might be a, a first step yeah I I think that's a good point too. A lot of people also use the the example of dealing with drug dealers. We shouldn't necessarily arrest every individual drug user. We should go after the the dealers because that's the bigger fish, so to speak, that by getting the drug dealers off the streets, there'll be less people using the drugs. And so, you know, we can grant drug users immunity if they give up the drug dealers. And same with the woman who has an abortion. We can grant her immunity if she gives up the name of the uh, abortionist. So, yeah, I think that's definitely a legitimate way to go also. Well, we're actually coming up to the end of our time together. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add regarding the book? No, I, I think I, I, I think that uh, I just encourage people to, to really pause and think whether you're pro-choice at the moment or pro-life. We, we need to, 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 to think carefully about this, and it's, it's for the sake of seeking what's true and good and for the sake of... Uh, vulnerable people at this moment, children. And I, and I think if we don't think carefully about these issues, not only will the, the unborn lives be forsaken, but the, the fallacious reasoning will uh, expand to born lives who are vulnerable. And, and I think if we don't put these tangled uh, webs of, of fallacious reasoning uh, in check, uh, we will be opening up uh, uh, or, or entering into a kind of a dark time where the powerful will trample on on the weak and vulnerable, and uh, it, truth will not truth about humanity will not be a concern anymore, but rather just uh, these these arbitrary criteria of whether or not you're a certain age or have certain quality or perhaps belief, uh, and uh, I think that uh, we're opening up some doors that uh, lead to darkness if we don't put this in check right away. And uh, where can people find you online? Do you have an online presence? I, I have a, I, I write uh, a blog called Apologia, uh, and uh, if you Google my name, it'll come up. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that's really, that's, I, I think, and also I, I, I write various articles that come up too. Uh, I suppose my blog is the only place I'm really kind of centered and I'm on Facebook too um, yeah yeah in fact you and I are actually uh, Facebook friends yes yeah so and Nathan uh, and Nathan okay well the book we've been talking about has been critical thinking about abortion untangling popular pro-choice arguments by Hendrik Vanderbregen Hendrik uh, thank you again for coming on our podcast and allowing us to to interview you and talk about your book Thank you very much, Clinton and Nathan. It was, it's, uh, it was my pleasure. If you've enjoyed this interview with Hendrik van der Breggen, I encourage you, of course, to, to pick up the book. It's relatively inexpensive on Amazon. But you can also share this around social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent. There's some new social media sites popping up, too. So we've actually started a, up a site on MeWe. We'll still be active on Facebook, but we've, we've started a page also on MeWe, which you can find us at as well. And uh, Parlor is a new Twitter analog that, that's popped up, and so we may begin a presence there too. We're not intending to leave the original ones, but we'll definitely have a, a presence there as well. Also, if you are able to and would would like to help uh, financially support the podcast, 
as uh, Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are working full-time to save them. The work that I do for the pro-life movement is subsisted by financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. And so if you have if you have the availability to, to give, we would greatly appreciate that. You can go to the Life Training Institute website, www.prolifetraining.com. You can click on Donate in the menu of the top and just make sure you put uh, my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And so we thank you again for listening, and I thank Nathan and Hendrik both for joining me today, and we'll see you next time. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.